The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Let's pray. That is good news, Lord, that we are your children. By your action, by by your initiative, by your power, you have made us yours. And we say thank you. We sing praise to you for that. And we also, if we can, we take a moment and we sit in it and we, we soak in that and appreciate it. You have made us new. We're not like we were, we're new. Bless your name. This morning now, as we look to your word, Lord, will you train us still a little bit more? Will you teach us something about, in, in this context, something about the ministry in the local church that you've, you've set up and how you've set that up? But Lord, help us to think beyond just ministry in the church, just to think about other types of applications of this point here and what it says to us and about us. So we look to you, Lord, to teach and to encourage and to show us something of what it is to be new in you. So teach this morning, Lord, clear away all the distractions and help us to to hear you and grow up into you. Thanks, Lord. We trust ourselves to you. Amen. This morning we're looking at the second to last passage in the book of 2 Corinthians. Next week is, is the very end of the book and has just some summary section and we'll take a little opportunity to like look back over the book some. But today Paul is finishing his argument. The, the things he's been teasing out and working with, especially the line of discussion that's gone through the last few chapters where he's been contending for the attention and the respect and, and kind of the, the adherence of, of the church there in Corinth to himself and away from. He's been urging them to steer away from these false teachers that are there in their midst. And he wants the church to stay loyal to him because he knows that in this particular case, it's very likely that temptation to pull away from him is temptation to pull away from God because he is God's apostle. The one God sent there. And so he wants them to acknowledge him and keep following him. He's been arguing for that. But here at the end, he's careful to make something that is really important really clear. He wants to be clear about this. The reason behind him being there in the first place. The reason that God sent him there. And the reason that the false teachers ultimately cannot embrace for themselves for their purpose there doesn't guide them. He wants to be clear. The goal of God in sending him there, the goal of him being there, is the building up of the church into maturity in Christ. It's not about Paul. Never has been. Ministry is never about the minister. It's always about the church and its growth in the truth. To the glory of God indeed, but On this level, on this plane, it's not about the minister, it's about the church and their growth. And Paul wants to drive that home here at the end, a point which in one sense may appear obvious to us. 
But I think it's something that we should, we should hear again and we should consider, especially in modern America where we have loads of massive churches in celebrity pastors. In that context, it can appear often to be about the guy whose face is front and center. It can often appear that when he says, my church, he kind of means it. In that context, we need to hear what Paul's saying this morning. It's actually not about the minister at all, about the church growing towards God. So we need to think about it in, in light of, maybe just hear it again and be reminded of in the larger, in the larger context. But we also, we live in a church here. We are, we are in a church and minister relationship. And it's good for us all to think about this, not just for out there, but for in here, so that we keep straight what's going on here. And that it's not about any of the ministers here in this church either. It's about the church. So we think about that. And I think also, beyond just the immediate context of church and minister, there, there's a principle here that, that applies to many other situations in life. Lots of other contexts where we find ourselves present somewhere to serve. And it's not only in the church where people who find themselves present to serve are also tempted by the opportunity to make a name for themselves with the service. We bump into that elsewhere too and in our workplaces and in our families. And we're gonna think about that this morning. We're gonna think about the context of the church for sure and also I think about larger contexts and other, other situations where we might apply what we find here. Servants are present, are given by God to serve. That's what we're going to think about this morning. 2 Corinthians, end of chapter 13, verses 5 to 10. Let me read it now, and then I'll draw two observations. Beginning in verse 5, Paul writes, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you find out that we have not failed the test. But we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth, for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. 2 Corinthians 13. Two observations, here's the first one. Personal reflection reveals the truth about ourselves and about Christ-like ministers. Personal reflection reveals the truth about ourselves and about Christ-like ministers. Verse 5, Paul exhorts the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. This is a well-known verse often used within the church context, to, to encourage those of us who are present towards a personal examination of our lives and of our hearts 
And, and the end of that examination is, the question being asked there is, are you actually a Christian? A real, genuine Christian? Or are you just perhaps someone who's grown up in the church, present in the church, knowing a lot about God? More than that, have you trusted Christ? That's, that's often how this verse is used, the question that's, that's asked from it, and that's fair. That, that's a fair application of the verse, as we'll see. But, in fact, it's not actually Paul's primary point here. He's getting at something else. Let's look a little more closely at it. In the original language, in verse 5, the word yourselves is actually kind of figuratively underlined. There's an emphasis put on it. It's front-loaded. I might say it like this, yourselves examine, yourselves test. And the word test there that's in different forms twice in verse 5 and in verse 6 and in verse 7, it's also up in verse 3 translated as proof. It's a word that comes from a metalworking context where, where, you can, where you can try to prove a metal. You stress test it to kind of examine it to see if it's genuine, to see its integrity. You put it under some kind of pressure well, what's going on here, if you follow the argument all the way down from, from verse 3, is that, and really all of the chapters preceding this larger context, the Corinthians have been proving Paul. They've been stress testing him to find out whether or not he's a genuine apostle. See, a doubt has been kind of placed in their minds that he's not actually the one from God because of this or because of that. And so they've been proving him or looking for proof, testing him. Is he genuine or not? And here he's saying, you know, what you all need to do is test yourselves. Yourselves test, not me. Examine yourselves, not me, to see whether you're in the faith, whether you're genuine. And notice, textually, he assumes their answer is going to be yes. He looks, he reads on, he actually thinks that for the from his perspective, the answer should be yes. End of the verse. He says, or do you not realize about yourselves that Christ is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test, which is him being, once again, a bit sarcastic. He does not actually think that the whole church is going to say, wow, none of us are Christians. He doesn't think that. He thinks they will give themselves a pass, as they should. And notice the logic of 5 and 6. You're examining me, you actually should examine yourselves. Ask yourselves if you're Christians. You're looking for proof in me? You're the proof. You're Christians. No one else evangelized you. No one else discipled you, just me. You are my letter of recommendation to you. Look at yourselves. You're the proof of my ministry. That's what he's getting at in verses 5 and 6. The fruit of his ministry tells us a lot about his giftedness and about the divine origin of Paul. Now, in the very next verses we're going to see, he wants to quickly clarify, and this is the next point, that this is not about making a name for Paul. He's not concerned to make a name for himself. But in the case of them wondering, is he genuine or not, there is evidence here. Look at yourselves, and you'll find in yourselves all the evidence you need about me. So that's one 
main point here for Paul, usefulness of self-examination. Prove something about Paul. However, that being said, it's fair to turn it around and probably a little more useful for us this morning to turn it around and kind of read it in reverse. Because the only way you would know anything about Paul by looking at yourself is that a genuine Christ-like minister is going to plant something into the church, something into people. And so what is it that they would plant? That they, you would look at it and you would notice it. You would observe and find true. Well, there are a couple things here. Something more rational that is something that's more about truth and the mind and thinking and understanding and believing. Something more rational and something more relational. So, looking at ourselves, examining ourselves, rationally, Christian, you are in the faith. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. You are. You are in the faith. You are in the body of Christian truth. You understand the doctrines and the teachings of God's word. You understand his law and his requirements. You understand his nature and your and all of our sinful nature and the ways that we all fall short of God's requirements. You understand all that the law says and all that it requires of people and the problem that it presents when it bumps into people like you and me. And you also understand and gratefully, willingly embrace, embrace by faith, all that God did in Jesus to answer the problem presented by the law. It is not a mystery to you. What happened at the cross? You, you get it, you get it. That at the cross, Jesus, God's son, sent to the cross why? Not to die just to do something dramatic. Not to die just to show God's love. Not, not to die uh, to show that sin is evil. But God the Son come to die on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God against sin in your place. You understand that and you embrace it. You trust it. This, this is the faith. That the only way to be forgiven and you believe it. You're in the faith. Is that you? Do you believe this? Do you trust it as your only hope for forgiveness and life? If you're a Christian, you do, and you can't see it otherwise. I remember when I became a Christian in college, and I discovered that I'd become a Christian different than how I had been raised in the church. I was raised in the church and thought and kind of intellectually agreed with many things, but I discovered in college I'd become a Christian, and one of the ways I discovered that was I realized I think differently about these things. Not, I've changed my mind I discovered I have a changed mind. 
I see. There, there were several things about doctrine, about life, how we should live, what's right and wrong. I saw that I saw them differently. And at first, I didn't know where that came from until I realized, oh, it's because of this thing that the other guy is telling me about. Like, I actually am different. Huh. I realized I'm in the faith. All the stuff that I, that I just kind of listed off there that we just kind of ran through our mind there, I realized in examining myself, I agree with that. I understand that. True, true, and appropriately so. False, false, that's wrong. This is right. I discovered I was in the faith. And you, upon examination, can and will discover that you are in the faith too. You can notice this if you look at it. Something rational is new in you, Christian. And something relational is new in you too. Do you realize, Paul writes, that Christ is in you? Jesus Christ lives in you. which is more than just agreeing with facts and seeing things differently. It's more relational, something astonishing that was referred to back in chapter 5. You're a new creation in Christ, and now God lives inside of you. He indwells you. Jesus does not just relate to you externally. He lives in your heart by his spirit. You are his dwelling place. You should reflect on that more often. You should consider that about yourselves. Think about it. You are the dwelling place of God. You are the temple of God by his pleased choice. However it is that you think of yourself, however it is that you think of yourself, particularly in your worst moments. And there is, I, I, I so much appreciate what, what was said this morning, Rachel shared with us. I don't know if you connect with that. I connect with a lot of what she said. And in our worst moments, do we not think of ourselves as probably being put up with by God? You are indwelt by Christ by the pleased choice of God. He does not just say, okay, I guess contractually I have to forgive you, but boy, you are his dwelling place because he wanted communion with you. He wanted to be with you. So he moved into you and took up residence with you. And what he did is he brought relationship to you, union with you that feels like something, that feels like joy and peace, feels like love, because God wants it to feel like joy and peace and love. He wants it to feel relational. It feels like he listens to you, like he communes with you, like he answers your prayer, like he walks with you, like he guides you and gives you instruction. It's relational. And it also feels like, sometimes like a long-distance relationship, still relational, but like, I want more of that. I miss it. Something's not quite enough yet. Can there not be a, a, a closing of this gap? Lord, 
That's relational too. It's a, it's a relationship of longing. He creates both the feeling of, of close intimacy and the longing for more. But he's done that because he wanted to. He didn't have to. Do you not realize, Christian, that Jesus Christ lives in you? Examine yourself. This is different. This is different and sweet and precious. You understand and think rationally about the world and you experience relationally God totally differently than ever before. Unless you don't, which is worth pausing to ask. Because I'm sure I'm talking about that to a group of people, and I am sure that most of us would say, yeah, that is true of me. Oh, praise the Lord that is true of me. That is good and right that you have done that. Thank you. But I'm also sure that there are some who hear this, and maybe you think a little bit of like, I don't know. I don't know. So let me, let me ask you to examine yourself. Do you know? And please let this not, let us not here become kind of confrontational. I sometimes hear this passage explained like, like almost like the, the pastor, the preacher, like is suspicious and kind of angry that you're not actually a real Christian. So it becomes confrontational here, like me trying to like force something on you. Let, 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 us, let us partner in this and say, for your good, will you examine yourself, please? Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? I mean, really, are you a Christian? Tons of people grow up in the church and hear many things and kind of like, yep, 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 yep. And if you stop and examine yourself, you'd say, I don't know that I actually have the sense of relationship that he just alluded to. And I don't know that I actually completely get all those facts or that I actually agree with all those facts that he just talked about. I don't know. Many people grow up around the church And I think more people than we would recognize haven't actually closed with Christ. And the answer to that is to right now say, but I need to. And so trust Jesus right now. I skipped through the, the truth there is a God. There is a God who made everything and rules over it all and a God who is holy, holy, holy. And he's laid out in his law what he requires of us that we be like him, sinless. And we are not. And cannot ever be. And the wages of sin have been clear all along, death. And so what's coming to people who sit before the God who is holy, 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 and aren't. What's coming to people who sit before him is judgment and condemnation. That's the truth. 
and, and what is gloriously true is that God did not end the story right there like he could have. But wanting relationship with human beings that he made in his image and loves, he sent his only son to the cross to die in your place. If you trust him, that's you. And then what happens is he moves into you and takes up residence in you and like a good and gracious God that he is begins to rearrange all the furniture on the inside and make you different, make you glorious like you were made to be all along but aren't. Examine yourself. Are you a Christian? And if you're not, become one. But I know that for most of us here, examine yourself. Is this you? And gloriously you can say, yeah, that's me. That is me. That's me. Well, think of yourselves as new then. New creations with new eyes and a new heart and a new present existence and a new set of promises and realities about a new future a new value system and new goals and new hopes. It is worth, it is deeply worth being conscious of this in the face of the ceaseless pounding of the world that wants to conform you to the old set of rational standards. That's not you anymore, you're in the faith. Think of yourself as that. That's not you anymore. You are in the faith and God the Son lives in you that you may know this and live this new life like him in this world. And one piece of the new life is this next point that we're going to look at. Verses 7 to 10. Here's the second observation. Christ-like ministers gladly give themselves for the upbuilding of God's people. So we hear in that that we start first with the context of the ministers, then we're going to move to all of us. Christ-like ministers gladly give themselves for the upbuilding of God's people. They give themselves to see the people grow. Verse 7 to 10, Paul's commenting on his praying and on his personal ministry. It happens both when he's physically present and when he writes letters from distance. He writes, we, I, pray to God that you may not do wrong, but that you may do what is right, which is a pretty simple way of saying that you would walk in righteousness, that you would not sin. You do what's right. But he's clarifying twice within verse 7, that is not about me. That's not so that I can somehow, by you walking in, in the right, I, I can use you to prove something about me. It's not about me passing the test. I want you to walk with Jesus, verse 7, the end of verse 7, even if somehow the result is that I don't seem to have passed the test, that I don't seem to be a genuine apostle. Maybe it looks like I fail. How would that be? Well, verses 8 and 9 kind of keep, keep the train of thought. He may seem to fail when they do right because 
4, verse 8, we, I, cannot do anything against the truth, but only what is for the truth. What he's saying is that he can only carry out the sort of action, the sort of supernatural, dramatic, painful, but supernatural action that would clearly show that he's the apostle, that he threatened to do back in verses 2 to 4. He threatened that when I show up, you will see the power of God at work in me. Well, he can only do that for the truth, for the sake of what is right. If they need to be corrected towards the truth, if they need to be corrected with the truth, then he can act. But if he comes and finds them doing what is right, as he prays for, in verse 10 as he writes this letter, hoping to accomplish, well, then he won't be able to do anything because he can't act against what is right. He can't act against the truth. So they'd see him passive again. No power display at all, again. And someone would surely say, again, see, there he is again. He writes this big, tough letter from a distance, threatens us, threatens to not spare us, like a tough guy way over there. And then when he shows up, nothing. Just like I said all along. There's no power of God in him. He's just a weakling. Just like I've always said. Somebody's surely going to say that. And Paul's point is, okay, so be it. Fine. I'm okay with that because the only way that would happen is if you guys are, in fact, walking with Jesus when I get there. And that's the goal. That's what I want. So if if it just so happens that you're walking with Jesus and I have no opportunity to display any kind of power and no way to prove anything about me with some supernatural show, great. I'm, I'm glad for that. I'm glad to be weak if you are strong. That's what I want. I want you to be strong in Jesus, strong in grace, strong in truth. What I'm praying for is your It says restoration. We could translate that as your maturity, your completeness, your wholeness. What I want is you right with God and pursuing him. Whatever happens to me, I don't care. That's Paul's point. So be it. Glad to give himself away for the godly growth of the church. That's a Christ-like minister. That's like Christ who gave himself away for the godly growth of the church. Christ who gave himself up for. If you look at his life, by the end of it, it seemed to be a total failure. He's all by himself and there's nothing to show for it, but that's, of course, we know, that's how it is that he made the church. It's how it is that he built the church. And it's what he's doing now, even in sending Paul and Paul equipped, Paul gifted to the church. Paul reminds us of this in verse 10 when he's, he mentions the, the use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up. God gifted Paul and God sent Paul gifted to Corinth for the sake of building the church, not for the sake of showing anything about Paul. This is a sweet sign of God's love for his people. And we should look at it and understand as, as, we, as we look at the ministry, Christ-like ministers in and among a body of people, what we're seeing there is, is the gift of God, the love of God. 
given to us for our growth, for our good. So we're looking at something that is, that is a gift to us, looking through that gift to the God who gave it in mercy and in grace. Christ-like ministers are glad to give themselves for the growth of the people of God. So, is that the kind of minister you are? Maybe not a vocational minister. You know, Paul's a vocational minister. There are, there are some people who are vocational ministers, but all of us in the church, we're all ministers. So, is this the kind of minister that you are? Within the church, or within other contexts, because I think there's a, there's a principle here that as we think about this principle, it, it applies not only in the church, but in other kinds of settings where we find ourselves in service. So where do you minister? Where do you serve people? Maybe in the church you, you teach a life training class or you help with a organization of a women's ministry event, or you are regularly trying to share the gospel with your next door neighbor. None of that's your job, but it is your ministry. So there, when you're in those situations, the idea from this passage should be telling you, should be th- you should be hearing this in your mind, I'm here in this setting because God arranged it. I'm here able in this setting because God gifted it. And I'm here able because God intends to do something through me for them. Not for me. Through me, for them. This is God through me loving them. This is God in pursuit of their growth, either to bring them into relationship with Christ or to grow them up into that, to mature them in that. This is not an opportunity for me to stick another feather in my cap or enhance my reputation. Do you realize that? That's why you're there. In whatever that setting is where you're there to serve, that's why you're there for them, not for you. Do you realize that? How could you tell? Well, you might be able to tell by noticing how you deal with apparent failure or with not being given credit or appreciated for the good you've done. Are you glad to have given yourself for their good, for the good of this brother or this sister or this this church or this neighbor? Are you glad for that or are you maybe kind of miffed if no one notices or if someone else gets the credit or are you embarrassed by the failure not, not sad that they didn't grow but embarrassed that you did poorly and people saw that response might tell you something about who you're in it for Let me take a step away from church ministry. Move into other types of service in your neighborhood or at work, school maybe. Similar principle. God is at work in you 
for them. Something's going on here. He's using you in some way for, for the world or for the environment that you're in. Part of that, particularly outside the church, part of that is going to be as a witness that draws people to Christ. But you're only going to draw people to Christ if and as you are serving Christ-like, serving for their good and for the sake of blessing to them, not using them for advancing your own reputation. So how do they regard you? Do they see you, workmates, neighbors, classmates, teammates, do they see you as there for them and for the good of the whole, or do they see you as there for you? As a servant or as self-serving? What about parenting? I find this one pretty challenging. If you're a parent... And if you think about this for just a second, I think there's a whole lot of, I teach my kids and athletically train my kids and stylishly dress my kids, not so much so that they can thrive as smart, strong, and sufficiently clothed people but so that I can live vicariously through them and project to the world that I am smart and strong and stylish. Ask yourself if that's true, parent. Look at my kids is often, look at me. And I notice that about myself. Maybe you notice that about yourself. I notice about myself by how I feel about their failures. I am often less grieved that they're grieved about their failure. And I'm often grieved because I'm embarrassed by their failures. I'm living. They're making a statement about me. And that's what I think is going on. That's what's going on here from my perspective. I'm here for me. I'm not an awful parent. I'm not an awful parent. I'm not totally here for me but I'm here for me more than I should be. Are you? It's a tricky thing. Parents and friends and employees and servants in the church and pastors and missionaries, it's a tricky thing for all of us. It is pretty clear. I, I really don't think that, that what I'm kind of, the point that I'm arguing here is that we're servants in somewhere to serve for the sake of others. I don't think that's really very controversial. I don't think that's hard to understand. I think it's pretty clear. I think it's pretty clear like Christ, but it's pretty tricky. It's clear and obvious, and it's challenging. We know it's distasteful to turn it to be about me. We know it's wrong. But ever since the fall into sin in Genesis chapter 3, we've struggled with this because, I think, because something in us, in me and in every one of us, persistently believes that we are what we produce, and nothing more. The narrative in our minds and hearts often runs something like this. I am worthy if I am effective. I am worthy of being honored if I do honorable things. 
I'm worthy being loved if I make lovely efforts or gestures. I am somebody if I build something or accomplish something or attain something. That's in my mind, and I bet it's in yours somewhere too, since we're both fallen and given to this bent. I make my own worthiness. That's human. It's arrogant. Part of me wants to make, part of us wants to make our own worthiness because then we can proudly say, look at me. It's arrogant and it is a tremendous burden. Do you realize how hard it is to live constantly trying to prove yourself? It's a tremendous burden to be only as good as what you produce and what others see you produce and what others acknowledge and what others bestow favor and honor upon. And given that mindset, we need, I think we all tend to turn all of the world into a place where I live proving myself. Are you following me here? We live in the world tending to use the world not as a place where we are used by God to bless, but as a place that is the proof of me and my worthiness. To test me and find me sufficient and good, and I use everything towards that end. It is an insatiable desire that we have to prop up ourselves and not to use ourselves to love others like Jesus towards Jesus. This is ugly and wrong and common, and it is something that Christ came to set us free from, which is good news. He came as a servant, despised and rejected, and by all appearances, a complete failure. But in his failure, that's what grew us up, broke us free, saved us. He was willing to go through all of that, glad for it, in fact, looking ahead at the joy set before him, a people that he was in relationship with who were new and fully human. At one day he saw ahead and saw the place where we, his beloved ones, would be free from the arrogance and free from the burden of trying to prove ourselves. He saw that and joyfully, gladly said, I'll take the weakness, I'll take the nails, I'll take it all if I could pay for their pride and secure for them their significance. And that's what he did. We aren't worthy. We aren't worthy because we are effective at anything. We, you Christian, you are worthy of being honored and loved and protected because Christ was effective in dying for your sin and raising you up as a royal son and daughter of the king, an heir of heaven. He made you good enough, and it's done. He secured your reputation independent of anything you do. Have you thought much about that, Christian? I don't mean, do you know that? I mean, have you thought much about that? Have you examined that about yourself? examined yourself in this light, contemplated it seriously, 
preached it to yourself until it makes a difference in your different heart. This is the ground. This is the ground for gladly giving yourself away for the good and the growth of others. Forgetting ourselves in a way, really, because all of the long-held doubts about our worthiness are chased away. And all of the pride that wants to build my own little sandcastle from which I might rule the world, that seems as foolish as it actually is, and it's swept away. As I and as you examine yourself and see you are in the faith and Christ dwells in you. That's enough. That's an infinite amount of good. That's enough. And forgiven and secured like that, then you can say, Lord, use me. Here's me. What do you want? Here, here's me. Put me somewhere, gift me in some way, and use me somehow to bless someone towards you. And I don't care because I don't need any kind of acclaim or any kind of a reputation, any kind of attaboy for any of that. You have enough in him. That's good news. To examine yourself and see that you are in the faith and that Christ is in you. It tells you a whole lot about what God's doing in you and how God's used ministers in your past. Yeah, that, that's good. But it also tells you a whole lot about you. It frees you up to serve. So what I'm going to pray for right now as we move towards communion is that God would impress upon you afresh these truths that you know, Christian, that he would press upon you freshly with the reality you don't need to make yourself worthy. I already did. And I would move you to give yourself away. Let me pray. Father, will you please approach your people In whatever way each individual here needs it, if, if they need, need you to come in a, in a mighty rush, then do that. If they need you to come quietly whispering, then do that. But approach your people and speak truth to them. Truth about who you are for them and therefore who they are in you. The goal at the end of this, Lord, is that the church should be built up. It's, it's about the church being built up, people being drawn to you. And you may want to use us in that process, but first, Lord, it has to start with you building us up individually. So speak to your people and remind them of who you are and who you are for them and who they are in you. As we take the communion elements in hand now, Lord, would you continue to speak? Make clear what this cup and bread's about. Present yourself to your people here. Minister to us, please. Thank you. Amen.
Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.